Welcome to Bewildered. I'm Martha Beck, here with Rowan Mangan. At this crazy moment in history, a lot of people are feeling bewildered, but that actually may be a sign we're on track. Human culture teaches us to come to consensus, but nature, our own true nature, helps us come to our senses. Rowan and I believe that the best way to figure it all out is by going through bewilderment into bewilderment. That's why we're here. So, Marty, I think there's a pretty good chance that our listeners are out there going, oh, wow, I have a lot of cultural messages in my head and Mm -hmm. it's not that easy to access the voice of my true nature. Yes. And I don't know, they might be thinking, is there anything else that I could do other than listening to this podcast to help me learn to listen to my heart? Well, I had this question, even as a young child, I would say, I am not happy. And people would say, well, it's all in your head. And I'd be like, I know, get it out of my head. But nobody could really help me do that. And so um, in my 20s, I sort of made up a system to help me detach from cultural messages and connect with my true nature. And it ended up being my career as a life coach and then training people to do the same thing. And I think that, you know, it's just like people who feel the urge to heal themselves, heal, help others heal and heal the world, mm. that this this term life coach sort of slots into that in our culture. And yeah. people take the training to hang out a shingle and become life coaches. People take the training because it's like getting life coaching yeah you know and people also take the training just to learn to access their own true nature yeah it was originally just a access your own true nature course Mm -hmm. but when you've mastered that you really want to share it with other people and people want to be shared with and they will pay you money so if that's the way you want to go that's why it ended up being life coach training but it's actually wayfinder which is different. It's about finding your way by connecting with your true nature and and steering your own course. So if people are interested, you can Google Wayfinder Life Coach Training or go to MarthaBeck.com and you will find your way. Yes, you will. Hi, I'm Martha Beck. And I'm Rowan Mangan. And this is another episode of Bewildered, the podcast for people trying to figure it out. I've been trying to figure it out myself in the early mornings lately and then Marty stayed up late and she listened to six full audiobooks in three hours and by the time my alarm went off she had it all figured out well yeah obviously the problem is it's all in my brain in the form of a phonological loop of course it is yes there's a part of the brain that when you hear something with your earballs it stays like perched in your brain. Like if you memorize a phone number and you say it over and over and you remember it and you dial the phone number, but it never goes to long-term memory. Uh So I have my six audiobooks on a phonological loop in my brain. It's totally figured out. No problems. Come question me within the next 30 seconds. I'm golden. After that, forget it. Nothing, nothing. That's what we do for exams, isn't it? Yes, exactly that. Exactly that. So what are you really trying to figure out, Rowie? Let me tell you. Just let me, because I'm gonna. Go ahead. I'm trying to figure out, Marty, (laughs) observing us in parents of toddler mode. Ah. I'm trying to figure out, are we potentially getting to a point where our personalities are going to be permanently altered? Oh, no question. Let me tell you why I ask. 
You don't know this. Okay, I'm listening. Well, I don't think you know it. Uh, so <laughs> probably three days ago yes, I was doing something. You were reading. Oh. You were in our living room reading. And as you read, I couldn't help noticing you <laughs> very gently what? putting your right foot in and then putting your right foot out. <laughs> and I knew what you were doing because you were also singing <laughs> gently to yourself under your breath. Then you put your right foot in again and do you know what you did? What? You shook it all about. Oh, no way. Oh, you did. There was oh no God, had, mistaking it. I had no idea. I mean, I knew, I knew from raising toddlers before that your brain is never the same. For one oh. thing, every baby comes out clutching about a fifth of your brain in its tiny fist <laughs> and that you never get that back. But then, then comes the toddler time and you will realize if you think about it, I mean, we've had COVID protecting us, but if any observer came in, they would hear us going, and that's what it's all about to ourselves while looking for like, alcoholic beverages or whatever. No. That's... I do think that potentially it is what it's all about. It is what it's all about. I think that's what I figured out the last time we recorded a podcast. That really is what it's all about. But yeah, you remain a toddler. You know what I just learned? What? And this is literally true. Marty, is it literally true? Yes. I was reading an argument for how language developed. And here's the deal. Music came first. Like, the ancient hominids, they were singing to each other and then poetry came next and then came like prose discourse. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It started in the right side of the brain and there are still cultures, mainly, you know, in jungle areas where there are no articulations, there's whistling and humming. And wow. that appears to be a precursor to the kind of language we usually speak. Oh, I love that. I love the idea that music comes first because that feels true to me. And think about how the baby comes along. I mean, like the second she was born. <laughs> like, remember we put her down, we took off all her little clothes, warmed her up so she, we'd see what she did just as a sprog. Yeah. Remember the song we started singing spontaneously? A wiggle, a waggle, a wiggly woo. A wiggle, waggle, wiggle, waggle. I love you. And then sometimes there'd be a little bit of a boop, 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 dee -doo. boom, boom. And now she's starting to, she gets to the point where every time we sing a song, she ends with boom, boom. That's really cute. We are, hey, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. I think that's it. Maybe it's Obviously. the opposite. Anyway, we are learning, we are relearning language as we did as toddlers. And I see no reason to go beyond the hokey pokey. None. Yeah, let's let's just Wouldn't we've got world, we're onto a good thing. Wouldn't the world be a better place if all the politicians, you know, when they do their debates, they're literally just I put my right foot in, I put my right foot on. The other one's like, I put my far left foot in and, <laughs> and then I shake it all about. My far left foot, which in any other country would be quite a centrist foot, but you know, <laughs> hey, whatever. <laughs> How um, far right can my foot go? It's forgotten, it's connected to my body and it's attacking my other foot. Marty. Mm. What are you trying to figure out, if anything? <sighs> I am trying to figure out why I can hold things in my head mm. that I heard in the middle of the night, like the evolution of language through music and humming. Intrability re-lagolates montaginimal. What? You just said it. What? <laughs> Interwidual 
bronchitichelates melogeny. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> that I can remember. Yeah. What I can't do is schedule a damn appointment. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I have, I have people that gently and kindly do that for me in some places, but like with personal things, I will, I will think I am going to get out of my ADD brain. I'm going to pull myself up by my damn bootstraps and I am going to think like a person for five minutes and schedule an appointment. So I, like, <gasps> I have to get nerved up for it. Like all the blood goes to my brain and I schedule something blah, 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 blah. like I did for this morning. This happens to be a Saturday morning. So I put, not only did I schedule an appointment, I put it on my reminders. So it comes to my watch. It comes to my phone. It comes to my friends all around the world. It comes everywhere. <laughs> and do you know what it says? What does it say, Marty? 10 o'clock Saturday morning. Uh-huh. <laughs> no idea what I'm supposed to do. Uh -huh. But damn it, I've got that time reserved and I know it's happening. <laughs> 10 o'clock Saturday morning. It came, it went. Did I lie? Nah. <laughs> Somebody we'll out there is going, where the hell is she? <laughs> oh, God. There's always someone out there going, where the hell is she? That's the story of my life. Yeah. It's often you. Mm. It, it really is. But I think I have an evil scheduler twin that's just trying to mess up my life. Mm. And it's winning. Totally. Totally. So, you know, in keeping with our new item, oh, yes. which won't be new forever, but it's still new to us, we mm -hmm. have to do our weekly Karenism. Karenism now. of the week. Yeah. Now, do you want to set the scene? Sure. We have this very large golden retriever who we adopt. We, she was a rescue. Somebody else couldn't keep her. We took her on. She's this big, fluffy, golden, beautiful. We sent her to Doggy Do Good Camp when we first got her. Doggy Do Good is supposed to send them back after two weeks with a full range of behaviors that you could use to get them to say, cook a full meal, right? Like this Doggy Do Good is the dog training champ. So we take her in two years later, two years, two months later. <laughs> no, it was two weeks. God darn it. <laughs> My evil twin. Um, they send a note. We would like to keep her for two more weeks. She hasn't really mastered all the skills. <laughs> so we left her there for a full month at Doggy Do Good Camp. She came back to us with a very, very dim, hazy understanding of the word come. Right. <laughs> Everything else was like not happening. And she <laughs> forgot that within a week. <laughs> they wrote a note saying, Claire is one of the prettiest dogs we've ever hosted at Doggy Do Good Camp. Her scores are very low. <laughs> Poor Claire. So picture it. Our living room, mid-afternoon. Mm. Karen is cleaning yeast infection out of Claire's ears with cotton balls. Which is constant. And I think, for frankly, it's become kind of a compulsive disorder for Karen, too. The two of them are locked in a folie à deux where Claire comes up and goes, excuse me, I'm feeling somewhat anxious. Would you please scrub the yeast from my ears? <laughs> That's how she talks. Excuse me. The, the first day we got her, I wake up in the night and there's this massive thing like clomped on my back, pushing her nose into my face, going, excuse me, I'm feeling a trifle anxious. Could I, could I please put my face against your face? And that's how we slept for about a week. Do you think anyone out there has a sexual kink 
whereby they f- they have to come up to their partner and go, excuse me, would you scrub the yeast from my ears? <laughs> I bet there's someone out it's there going, I feel so seen. <laughs> <laughs> so there Karen is scrubbing the yeast from Claire's ears. Claire loves it, by the mm. way, because it's attention. <laughs> and Karen fondly looks down at Claire and she says, Oh, Claire, you're just a combination of yeast, Prozac, and dumbness. Yeah, that's it. A dog made of yeast, Prozac, and dumbness. And who among us can say different? (laughs) (laughs) None none among us. My evil scheduled twin could say that. But, yeah, that's our Karenism. She just occasionally just, one of them just floats out of her brain and it's delicious. I enjoy it deeply. Utterly delicious. But let's get on to the podcast of the day. The topic at hand. The topic at hand, yes. We'll be right back with more Bewildered. I have a favour to ask. You might not know this, but ratings and reviews are like gold in the podcasting universe. They get podcasts in front of more faces, more eyes, more ears, all the bits that you could have a podcast in front of. That's what they do. So it would help us enormously if you would consider going over to your favorite podcasting app, especially if it's Apple, and giving us a few stars, maybe even five, maybe even six. If you can find a way to hack the system, I wouldn't complain. And uh, a review would also be wonderful. We read them all and love them. So thank you very much in advance. Let's just go out there and bewilder the world. Mwah! change, eh? Mm, It sure does keep happening. I feel like there's something that you, Martha Beck, have created that will help us understand how change affects us and how to manage it. Oh, by coincidence, now that you mention it, I have. It's called the change cycle. Mm. It's about four aspects of the whole process of change. And we've put the information together in one handy place so that the people can refer to it when they're going through change. And you know what else? We also made podcast episodes about each of the four squares in the cycle that are also on this new page that we've made for the peoples. Well, how remarkable is that? All right. You can find out all about the change cycle at marthabeck.com slash change. So this episode... The topic of this episode comes from a conversation, as so many of them do, let's be honest, a conversation that we had recently about, of all things, whether or not the plot of the long ago book, Lord of the Flies, mm, classic. is classic. It's another word for long ago book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Marty. Anyway, Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies by William Golding is plausible or not. Mm. So... Our question was, will a group of boys, if left to their own devices on a desert island, kill each other? Yeah. Just in case you've never read Lord of the Flies, that is the plot. And it was written by William Golding, who was a a very unhappy schoolmaster in England um, in the early 20th century. And he wrote this book where a bunch of schoolboys end up deserted on an island, and at first they have sort of social institutions that they put in place, but very rapidly they deteriorate into brutal, horrifying, like animalistic 
well, no, animals are nice. They're much worse. They they like are killing each other and biting each other's flesh it's off. It's sort and... of like bullying taken to its natural extreme. Yeah, 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 quite so. And so this became a huge aspect of the culture mm. where, I mean, Golding's premise was, you know, thank God for all the rules at British boarding school because this is what boys will do when left to themselves. Right. It's And it was almost sort of taken as a for obviously but then i was reading a really good book called humankind a hopeful history by yes. rutger bregman who's a dutch uh, psychologist sociologist social scientist anyway it was the ninth book she read three nights ago yeah i've got it on a phonological loop catch me now because it'll be gone in the morning yeah anyway he did he his premise is people are naturally good okay fine so he said lord of the flies was accepted as if it were fact, but in in point of order, it is fiction. So he went looking for an, a real world scenario, and he actually found a case where a group of boys in the South Sea Islands stole a boat for a joyride, got caught in a storm, and ended up stranded on a desert island for 15 months. Isn't that brilliant that there's a real case of it? I mean, probably, sorry, boys. Yeah, and I think one of them was the, the the sea captain who found them was Australian. Yeah, of course he Australians was. Australians to the rescue, right? And South Africans, just the adventurous folk. Um, so what he found out was what had happened on the island when they were in fact in a Lord of the Flies situation. The first thing they did was sit down and say, we must never disagree with each other. We're all we've got. <sighs> and like, if we get upset, go off to a different part of the island. You know, if you've argued the two boys who argued go to different places till you calm down. Then we'll all get together and, and iron this out together, which is the way a lot of tribal people do work with conflict or did when they still were left um, to themselves. But they were 15 months later, they were in tip, sh tip top shape physically. They were lifelong friends and they had evolved a way of being and doing things that was intensely cooperative. So How said, many of them were there? There were six. So do you think that that case, not to get too far off topic, mm. but like that that case um, buoys the theory that, you know, culture only really begins to break down once it gets to a certain number of people or is that bullshit? Uh, yeah, that's a that's span of attention. Basically when you get to a group of 135 people, they can't form a cohesive organization and they start factionalizing like a company would have to start making departments it's like the most people we can hold in our heads is about 135 people um, that's way more than i can oh me too and yet we know how people have like nine thousand friends on facebook that's yeah that's a whole nother podcast topic anyway um that's really not about things become bestial and brutal at that point it's just that you can't really track the activities of that many people. So mm. you have to start diversifying. Creating social media platforms. I think that Golding would argue with Hobbes from the Leviathan, there's this breakdown where Hobbes was a oh, philosopher God. and Rousseau was a philosopher and Hobbes said people were nasty, brutish and short. Actually, their lives <laughs> were nasty, brutish and short. He was physically nasty, brutish and short. Then you've got Rousseau who said, no, people are actually good, noble, savage. All, we're all good at heart. And there's been this back and forth ever since. And I think the William Golding, Lord of the Flies thing is you get two people in a room, they're still going to stab each other's eyes out. Like that's just who we are. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 So it was quite interesting in our conversation where – 
Marty said, well, that's how kids actually are, like these Polynesian boys who were there and, and created a little utopia. Yeah, it's like, oh, la, la, of, everything of is nice. Cooperation and like a little Swiss family Robinson kind of scenario. Um, but I said to her, no, no, but that's bullshit because kids at school actually do act that way. They act exactly like Lord of the Flies and that's usually when Lord of the Flies is invoked. Yeah. Is to describe kids at school. And then so then we looked at each other like oh, oh. school. School. So instead of thank God we have the rules of school because it's keeping people from being bestial brutes, it's like, oh, all those institutional rules are making them bestial brutes. So we started talking about like the institutions of the culture. And how, like, you know, I'm talking about schools, uh, universities, corporations, governments, military, prisons. Prisons is kind of the ultimate. Yeah, like those are the kind of big eye institutions, right? But then there's yeah. also, you know, the more practice-based. Yeah, the, there's either, yeah, they either exist in, as an entity or as a relationship. So institutions like marriage and the traditional family, there's some religions that just sort of um, leak into every aspect of your life called life world religions. And those are also institutions, though, they're, there's you don't go to them the way you'd go to a um, prison, for example. By the way, just a shout out to the show we've been watching on Apple TV called Severance, where it is the corporate world taken to its extreme. Anyone who's watched Severance, bear that show in mind as we have this conversation. Yeah, because it basically shows how the corporation taken to its logical extreme becomes very prison-like. Among other things. But so do practices. So do families. Mm -hmm. So do, you know, life world religions can become very, very confining and, and put you under a microscope of scrutiny to see if you're cooperating. Yeah. And uh, that's, yeah. So in a way you can sort of think about these institutions as the as the hands and the arms and the biceps of the culture, right? Because mm. they're it's where, you know, the culture teaches us to be it. Yeah. It's the places where we get indoctrinated or trained. When we were talking about it, I kept saying it's like a human processor. These institutions like a food processor processor are human processors because you go into them. Yeah. And they form you or yeah. deform it digests, you. <laughs> they digest all the bits of you that they can use mm -hmm. and then they excrete everything else. And Ooh. it so happens that what they can use is conformity, obedience, thought, you know, blind obedience. Um, and what they don't want, what they excrete out the other side. Oh, In other words, what they treat as the, hmm, yeah, the end product of digestion <laughs> is your soul, your personality, your joy. Those really don't make institutions run more effectively. The institution wants a mechanistic approach. It's so interesting what you say about biceps because um, the, where the right hemisphere approaches things by interacting with them, the left hemisphere of the brain makes you grasp, grasp, grasp things. Mm -hmm. And there's this, and it also creates the types of institutions that force obedience. But we we don't need to look very far for examples of this. You mm. know, we've all seen how institutions eat people's souls in one way or another and how that can create brutality. 
And so that was our that was our takeaway from the Lord of the Flies thing is that the institutions are the problem creating the supposedly subhuman behavior, not keeping us from it. So if the boys are taken out of the school, so if we're taken out of the social controls, will we kill each other or will we cooperate? You know, Golding says that only, this is what you were just saying, Golding mm-hmm. says that only school prevents brutality. And and then the question that we're raising today is are those behaviours that we think of as coming from um the absence of the controlling yeah, institution yeah, yeah. are actually um, the thing that's creating that. Right. Sorry, I got bit, a bit lost in the digestive metaphor, so I'm just trying to come <laughs> back to like desert islands are easier for me than gastrointestinal tracts. Uh, well, I like the organic side of it. So anyway, that's what we're talking about today, right? What is our real relationship with institutions as part of the culture. And we all interact with various institutions, our families, our work, jo- our work jobs, hmm, hmm. Work jobs, um, uh, religions, different, you know, if you're going to a university or whatever, if you have medical care, you're in the institution of medicine. And we talked about it and decided that this is something we need to understand so that we can come to our true nature because it is very, very insidiously destructive to nature. It is. Yeah. So as our listeners know, in this podcast, we help people from bewilderment uh, to bewilderment to their wild true nature. And I must say like this topic is a a meaty one. Mm. And so we're going to try and keep it as simple as we can as we go through. Um, But let me tell you, it got meaty as hell out the back when we were trying to like, oh, I mean, she's already got into Rousseau. We, the Camus came in. I mean, there, there will be existentialists. Yes, there will be Friends, existentialists. How could there not? Yeah. So prep yourself. Get ready. Get it, ready. We got some philosophers coming your way. All right. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. So listen, Marty, yeah. what, let's explore first. What does the culture say What's the cultural context? What's the consensus view about institutions? Well, you could almost say that um, that cult- institutions are like fractal forms of culture writ large. Let me break that down. Um, they're smaller versions of the, the the main culture of that is dominating you, whatever that happens to be. So you may be, if you're in the West, we talk about Western culture a lot, and the Western culture creates institutions that are like hyper examples of itself. So the, and, and the only thing that the culture ever wants is for you to do what it says. So yes. Can I say a word? Yes, please. Cynic docky. Cynic docky. Wait, I just have to hold that in a phonological loop and just stroke it for a few minutes. A cynic docky is when you take one example of a thing to represent the thing so you can say a sail and what you actually mean is a fleet of ships so wow if you look at a single church we say the church that's a cynic docky because mm. we say the church with a small c no no with a large c meaning the institution of churchiness right. which is their official name so it's a cynic docky. Wow, that is incredible. It is such a shorthand way to just like deliver this 
this concept, cynic docky, you say to people, and then you spend 20 minutes describing what you mean, what, defining cynic docky. And after that, everyone just has to sit and fondle their phonological loop. I would like to tell a story now. Please do. My friend Kat, who is a listener to this show, Hi Kat, once um, was delivering a paper at a conference. She's an academic. Um, she's very institutionalized in universities. Um, but <laughs> she'd written this paper and she got up to, to deliver it and she used the word synecdoche in it. And it was only when she got to the sentence with the word synecdoche in it that she discovered she had no idea how to pronounce the word <laughs> synecdoche, which is not intuitive and you got to learn that. So yeah. everyone go like... Let that yeah. one go in. I'm doing a public service here. You are. I'm yeah. helping. To me, you know what's coming into my mind is Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh because yeah. he's a cynic donkey. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see that coming. I made you laugh with a pun. You told me that no pun will ever make you laugh. God damn it. You're the one who brought up cynic donkeys. I do. <laughs> I'm never going <laughs> to... Kat, let's just go back to cynic doche. Okay, cynic doche. Ah, All right. I've embarrassed myself a few times that way, words I read but did not know how to yeah. pronounce. Okay, so, so the the whatever your cynic docky is, the church, whatever your individual church is, wants you to be faithful, you know, and not question it. The job demands loyalty. Your family has certain rules and roles that define how you interact with each other. And everyone says, you know, that's the way it's done. Like, yes, you go to Uncle Harold's birthday party, even though everyone despises him and he attacks people with weapons because it's family and that's the way it's done. You know what occurs to me is that we talk about culture and on this podcast and we talk about how we make little cultures all the time. Right. And I wonder if the word institution is a good way of like thinking about it because the institution of, there's the institution of family, but then there's the institution of your family. Right. And, you know, and the, and the way that those rules function, they function within right. this kind of institution. Yep. Fractal forms, fractals, fractals, fractals. Yeah. So the institutions like are the way that the culture like reproduces itself and sustains its mm -hmm. own uh, existence. Like you think about school we march these children. I'm not saying school's bad. Sometimes it's bad. I not always. School. Yeah, I loved school. But we march them in and then they march out the other side with like Rousseau yeah. in their Because <laughs> that'll help you in, yeah. the, in a blizzard. <laughs> and phonological loops that are already like dissipating by the time they, they head I out. I may not know how to pay the rent, but I can say cynic ducky in a speech. Hell yes, I can. I literally don't know how to pay the rent. I mean, I know that there's money and it has to go there, but the the logistics of it baffle me. It's just like ten o'clock Monday morning. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, so how, like, so the way I think that the culture does this control of us through its institutions is through um, like positive dog training rewards mm -hmm. like rewarding rewarding us and approving of us when we do it right and ignoring us or censoring us when we do it wrong but especially the reward that's pretty powerful well i mean that's what motivated us in school because that we fit in pretty mm. well with that particular yeah. institution we like doing it and uh it felt very comfortable to us it was easy to 
Like I was such a suck up, bro. Oh my God, me too. Oh my God. I knew, I knew intuitively, even as a small evil child, Mm -hmm. that if I sat near the front and looked absolutely fascinated, even though I was thinking about very different things and like, you know, making animals with clay under the desk um, with my hands, if I looked absorbed, I would be teacher's pet. I didn't even have to perform well, just look at him that way. Oh, I know. At my most insufferable, yeah. I used to sit on the desk. Oh, that is, that's low. In this one class every time. And I was such the teacher's pet. It was so gross. I would sit on the desk. I would write that. I, yeah, you can, you can do it because. A lot of approval. It's a lot we got of a lot of approval. Now, other people who didn't fit into the system get a lot of punishment. And I've worked with so many of those people as clients. I did a seminar once where like half the group turned out to have dyslexia. And I got to tell you, the stories of how they were shamed and battered by the school system made me weep openly. I I have some idea of that from people I know. And I I also want to say that there is another institution, (laughs) which is the institution of the playground. And sometimes the teacher's pets who did great indoors did less great (laughs) when it came to the institution of the playground. Oh, yeah. Um, which is where we start to edge into William Gold. I was, I was periodically tied up by them during, Jesus. yeah, it wasn't wasn't a great playground place for me, which is why both of us, like when Lila says ball and kicks it across the room, we, we look at each other with eyes like horses that have just realized the barn is on fire. <laughs> Don't let her go into a playground. Okay, so anyway, yeah, the institution takes you in, it molds you with b- both positive and negative reinforcement. And if you're not Claire the dog, you come out doing what they say you should do. Mm. Otherwise, if you are Claire the dog, your scores will be very low. Anyway, um, so the thing is, when you're born into this, you're, you've you got this wide open social sensibility that just sort of sucks up all the reinforcement, but like mm-hmm. at the most minute level. And before you can talk, you're already conforming to it and believing that that's how it is. You just believe your authority um, figures. Mm. Then at some point, you're going to hit an institution that isn't right for you. Yeah. So like, and and there's always, the, the crap always flows downhill with institutions. So like there's a centralized school system that we both thrived in. Um, when I put my older kids in school, they didn't all thrive. They didn't all like it. And the pressure I got to make the children fit in was mm-hmm. a social pressure that I've, I had never experienced before. Like make, not only does the child have to fit into the school, but the parent has to make the child. And I totally bought into that for a while. Mm. You know, greatly to the ex- at the expense of my relationship with my kids and my kids' happiness, I was trying to force them because I was getting so much pressure from the institution. Right. And then, so all institutions do that. They develop these levels of hierarchy and the people who've sucked it all in with their mother's milk and have never questioned it will then massively apply it to other people. People who get hazed. I worked with a bunch of doctors once and there's a kind of hazing period. I had a doctor who had been on call for 48 hours and had the flu and was told to operate on someone. And she said, I can't, I'll kill him if I open his chest. 
and um, the her supervisor, her attending or whatever they call it, uh, said, you're going to do that or you'll never be a doctor, you know, cut now. And wow. yeah, like that's how hard we are socialized by institutions and we become like them. Mm, that's right. And it's not very, they're not all organic, squishy things, institutions, like like little us. So as we become like them, we become like I don't, the flu doesn't exist. Open that. You Use your machine to open that machine and cut it up. I don't know how exactly how surgery works, but I think it's something <laughs> that like this. I think this. is a good, for those of you who can see this, is a good representation of heart surgery. Yeah, just kind of waggle your hands about a bit. I think I'd be great at it, but anyway. So... <laughs> So here's the thing. You go into the institution and if you can match what it wants, it rewards you so much that you feel safe. Yeah. And yeah. you feel, ah, I have, I have my community around me and I have made it. I have done, mm. I have gained the respect and the, the belonging that all of us crave. But at the same time, because the institutions are not actually modeled after our nature, they feel good to the ego, the, the part of us that is purely social, but they can be murder to the soul. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And the more institutionalized we become, the more we lose a sense of freedom. So to come back to the Lord of the Flies and the school example, we so this idea of freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Like the boys are free on the island where they supposedly kill each other. Right. But what do we mean by free? What's free versus what's safe, right? Because somewhere between in this, like the story's metaphor of like the boarding school through to the desert island is, is a choice that we're actually facing in our lives all the time, which is do I like tend towards um safe yeah or do i tend towards free and i don't mm. think i fully understood until we started having this conversation that safe and free are often as we experience them like opposites right and we think of freedom as such a like la la easy yay i'm free free and easy but Actual freedom, when you're looking at how we relate to our culture, can be really scary. And the institution often is looks like the more comfortable yeah. choice to it's make. It's the alternative to plotting our own course, mm. right? Mm. So yeah. we don't have to make decisions. We don't have to. We just do what we're told. We look for our instructions. We follow our instructions. Right. And whew, we're off the hook for figuring out what to do with our lives. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Um, so like every morning we wake up with a range of choices, depending on, you know, where we are. Some of us are like, like if you're in prison, then your ranges, your range of choices obviously narrowed. But Viktor Frankl said there are two ways to go to the gas chamber, free or not free. And that's what he sort of discovered for himself in Auschwitz. You can't think of a more brutal and regimented institution than that. Um, so he still felt like he had the option of remaining free at some level in some way. And I remember reading that when I was about 13 and, and having to go away and think hard, like, how could you possibly be free when you're trapped? 
And I think it's about the choice of how you define yourself and these tiny myriad forks in the road that you make every day. So you get up in the morning, um, there's this wonderful scene, I think it's in the color purple. I can't remember which book it's in, but it's- Purple. What? Purple. Purple. Oh, purple. <laughs> that's how Lila says, purple. 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 We are definitely degenerating <laughs> into toddler brain. I'm so sorry. So anyway, it's a it's a woman who's been raised in slavery mm-hmm. on the morning after emancipation. And she goes to the door of this hut and she has no resources, no supportive social structures at all. And she says, I get to decide for myself what to do with the day. And here's the thing is she appreciates that having been robbed of it totally. Hmm. But we get up and more often than not, the idea of deciding for ourselves what to do with the day is just too overwhelming. There are two ways to go to the coffee machine. <laughs> free or not free. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right on the edge there, Rowie. But that's me contrasting my easy privileged life with what yes. other people have had to go through. Privilege noted. Check. Anyway, so the easier path, I think, for most people, because we've been enculturated from our birth, is what do we do with the day? We obey an organizational credo of some sort, an mm. institutional rule. Mm. We, mm. you know, on our way to the coffee machine, what do you do? Do you shave your face or your legs or both? Um, do you uh, send the emails to your superior who's sent you emails overnight because we're not supposed to sleep in the in your corporate culture? Uh, do you act out your cultural family role? Do you just fall into the institutional expectations? I think most of us do that. And the real killer here is that we don't understand we're doing it because it's invisible to us. It's as we've interjected or built into our own psyches, the rules of the institutions that we belong to. So we don't know that we're free yeah, and to this choose is, our behavior. This is my mantra that I'm always repeating when we talk about these things is like, we don't realize that culture is optional. We think it's natural. We think yeah. that we're obeying our own preferences, right? But I think what this like conversation showed me is that no, that by it making itself the path of least resistance, the institution has actually, you know, often is actually just slightly molding us towards moving in its, you know, into itself. <laughs> I would say more than slightly, often. Yeah, yeah, but but it, you're you you allow yourself to tell yourself that it's still a personal preference yeah. rather than a mind mind control. Yeah. The question doesn't even arise to you because it's, it's internalized at such a deep level. So we think the two phrases that I always ask clients not to say unless it's literally true are I can't and I have to. And just notice the places where you say I can't and I have to. I have to go to Uncle Harold's house, even though he stabs people because I'm his nephew or whatever. I have to go to work because I I have to go to this job because it's my only way to survive. I have to, I have to, I can't choose for myself. This really, this whole thing really turned for me when you said, what if institutions aren't using us? Mm. What if we're using the institutions? 
Because if pressed, we will say we are victims of the institution. I have to because the system says I have to. There's no argument, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But what if, given the ultimate freedom that we all do have, mm-hmm. we shun our liberty and say, oh, I'm not going to have to take responsibility for thinking it through or dealing with the consequences or doing the hard things as long as I have to do it for the institution. So we're using the institution. And I can tell you, I have had clients go into rages when I said they had a choice whether to stay in the job they hated or leave it. Isn't that rage? fascinating? Yeah. Isn't that fascinating that when presented with our own choices, we can become furious? Oh, my and God. furiously defend our lack of choice. Yes, yes, terrifying. I was I was in an assertiveness training class once, and there the teacher was saying, um, when you say that makes me mad or that made me feel whatever, uh, we're actually not being accurate. What we say is you did that, and I felt this way because you get to choose even how you react emotionally to what people do. So this is you know, even in a very confined situation. And this woman, this little meek looking woman jumped up and screamed, I do not have choices. And then she stormed out of the class because she in fact had a choice. (laughs) Right. But everybody else in the room was like, wow, object lesson. Yeah. Fascinating. It really is. Yeah. So we, this is where we got in our conversation about these issues and inevitably as happens and we did warn you we got drawn into existentialism like you do like you do and marty you know that because i said the word existentialism you now have to tell the existentialist (laughs) story okay which is completely irrelevant to this topic totally irrelevant just put parentheses around this whole thing but it's very funny so i was talking to a friend um who knew Ro and Karen and me, but hadn't realized we were a unit, right? And um, one day uh, we were talking along and I realized that she didn't know that all three of us were in a relationship. So I told her, all of you who haven't heard the previous podcast explaining this, if you're freaking out right now, that's what she did. (laughs) But she, of course, protested that she was not freaked out. She was like, oh, oh yeah, that's fine with me. That's fine with me. I mean, I'm very, myself, I'm very, and she was groping, I could tell for the word eccentric. She was, I'm very, well, I'm not an existentialist for sure, because they are really crazy. And I was like, yeah, you're Mm. eccentric. How does she demonstrate to you she said, her yeah, own eccentricity? I, mean, I, uh, I, read, I read books about these things. I mean, there are books about it. I mean, Google it, Google books. And and then sometimes when I'm at a restaurant, I just eat the whole shrimp. The whole shrimp. With the, with the tail and everything. It's very similar to polyamory. Exactly like polyamory. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So there you go, freedom and choice. <laughs> <laughs> and the relationship always of seafood to your choices as a social creature. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Perfect metaphor. So <laughs> back to philosophy. Back to philosophy. So this is where I started thinking about Sartre, right? And started imagining myself walking through the left bank and all that fun stuff back when I could still smoke ciggies. The Rive Gauche. And um, so Sartre reckoned that all our suffering as humans comes from the fact that we can't cope with our own freedom, the fact that we are essentially free. And 
Oh. oh, I just, you know, that really resonates with Pascal's famous statement. All our suffering comes from the fact that we are unable to sit quietly alone in a room. Because if you sit quietly, your nature rises up and you recognize your the, the truth of your own freedom. So they were kind of edging toward the same thing. When you let go of everything, boom, you start to feel the terror of your own freedom. So sorry, back to sorry. I don't disagree. Yeah. As our friend Carmen would say, I don't disagree, but but I do think that you just got stuck in a little bit of competitive name dropping there because you heard me say Sartre. Well, it's and you your little Harvard drink self went, oh, I see your Sartre, and I raise you Pascal. Yeah, well, but guess what? I've got Camus round the corner. Well, bitch. I am. I am. I am in fear and trembling. Kierkegaard, boom. <laughs> <laughs> I said Kierkegaard before you said they're Kierkegaard when we were talking now, about this. They're going to tie us up on the playground and they t- they're going to tie us to the swings and then do bad things to us on the swings. <laughs> Trust me, it's happened before. <laughs> I anyway. think you'll find that Sartre says, <clears throat> and I quote, <clears throat> I, I think it was Sartre who said quite literally, man, he means that in a very general sense, is condemned to be free. Condemned to be free. Because once thrown into the world, he's responsible for everything he does. It's up to you to give life a meaning, which is terrifying. Absolutely. I mean, to realize there are no grown-ups, that we're all just bit-bopping around, like mm. like the boys on the desert island, all the grown-ups are gone. What the hell, what the hell are we going to do, right? That's, oh, yeah, of course. Institutions are the grown-ups. I just did that. I just did that. And that means that we can be kids forever. Yeah. If we just keep going to church and keep going to, you know, our corporation, then we don't have to ever be free. So many people uh, in like 15, 12 to 15 years ago, there was this period where I started like, I have this little company, Martha Beck Inc. I had one person working with me and we would get, I would get maybe twice a month, I would get people sending me emails saying, I need a job at your company. I will do anything. I will empty the waste baskets. I will lick the floors clean with my tongue. And I'm like, they're like, maybe I could work in sales or marketing. I'm like, this is me and one other person. Um, And I would think, I would say to them, I just made up what I'm doing. Mm. I make up every day. I make up my job. I make up my company. It's terrifying. (laughs) I don't know if it'll work ever. Why don't you make something up? Because it's terrifying. Exactly. And because we're not taught to do it at all. We're not socialized to be free. We're socialized to be unfree. You know, it's interesting, Marty. We often talk about the fact that as a public figure, thought leader, you know, all these things that you are, that there's this tendency that people have. Like you have brilliant ideas. You have a brilliant mind. Mm -hmm. You're very well spoken. You're also really good at naming things and you know we've talked about how um from people you know through to people who read your books or or listen to this podcast or whatever you know you'll say something and have an idea and people want to immediately turn that into an institutional document yeah into a kind of dogma yeah and they'll come and i'll see like people say settle an argument for us in 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 your book steering by starlight you wrote about the map maker and the i don't know oil rig worker i can't remember <laughs> and, and they're like what are the differences and similarities between the oil rigger and the map maker and i'm like i don't know i haven't read it 
(laughs) (laughs) And, but, but it becomes like this monolithic collection of meanings because I used it as a metaphor in a book once. And that's another way in which the institutional part of the mind, really, truly the left hemisphere does think in more linear fragmented terms. Mm. I know that's a generalization, but it's also, there's a lot of evidence. So one of the things about it is it's very, very verbal. And when, and it creates straight lines and hierarchies. And so the moment you give something language and it fits into the model of maybe this is an institution. People are like, okay, we need to have debates on the merits of these terms so that we can obey them somehow. And we desperately need a job with your company, which actually does not really exist. They want you to be their church. They want you to be their corporation. (laughs) They want you to be, yeah. Somebody be the grownups and I'm not a grownup. Oh, I can vouch for that. I get every, every morning and go, oh, shit I get to decide for myself what to do with the day it's terrifying and that's bewilderment that never gets easier well it you're right bewilderment gets easier because your wild self starts stepping up and saying here are the things I would like to do but that comes later after the that's that's sort of how to get wilder so most of us are trained to just get up and do what we have to and like no matter how the freedom is offered to us, we don't take it. I had this class of business school students once, and I said, what is your goal in life? And this one kid said, a kid, he was 30. He said, um, I want to travel the world. And to do that, I have to get a job in a big company, work my way up the corporate ladder to CEO, become a member of the board with a lot of wealth, and then I can travel. Mm. And the other students in the class immediately said, they were from all over the world, international business school, and they started to say, well, in my country, you could go right now and teach English as a second language. In my company, you could like stay with my friends and help them build their house and they would put you up for a month. Within 15 minutes, they had found ways that this young man could actually really truly have taken off the next day to travel the world. Mm. That's how free he was. And did he do it? No, he had to really let go of the institutionalized aspects of his own mind before he could allow himself to even countenance it, let alone get the courage to do it. Right. And we do that in the, like in those big eye institutions, like corporate um, institutions, but we also do it, I think in the, in the small eye institutions, like, you know, the, the, the family rules. I remember a long time ago, a friend of mine who was a single mother at the time, it was father's day. And I remember her just being absolutely heartbroken and saying, a family isn't a family without a dad. And, and whoops. (laughs) (laughs) Oh shit. We fucked that one up. Um, you know, and it's just so funny how the the in, the way that we interpret institutions can just have such power yeah. over us, you yeah. know. And, you know, we talked about, I think we've talked about it before, but um, someone I knew was talking about Liz Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love journey with some colleagues and they were absolutely outraged that she did that, like, oh, it must be so nice to just travel. I would have to sell my house to do that. And uh, my friend went, well, she did sell her house to do that. Like, it's a choice. Don't mention that. (laughs) Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. (laughs) Exactly. 
and the man behind the curtain is you and your own freedom. Oh, wait, let that sink in for a while. You pull the, Toto the dog pulls the curtain away and it's you fooling yourself into thinking you have to do what you say. <laughs> wow, those drugs that Judy Garland was taking are pretty strong. <laughs> yeah, well, she was an existentialist and they are way out there. I've heard she used to eat an entire shrimp. Yeah. So, yeah, so Tim Ferriss was the other one that I thought of where, you know, he was challenging the same, the work one. The work one's very powerful in yes. in our In this larger, particular culture it really is, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, where when he wrote the um, four-hour work week, his his whole premise was we have this idea we work and work and work and save and save and save and then we retire at 65 and then we can travel for a while. And he's like, no, just do it all at once, be working and, you know, travel was a big one for him like it was for me, you know, travel um, while you're working, make it all happen at the same time, not when your body's not as fresh and Yeah. <laughs> and I think like I think one thing that that shows us is that we are freer now to cobble together the life we want than ever before. If you were born a peasant in, you know, the in 12th century Scotland, you were going to plow the fields, feed your family just barely, serve your feudal lord, hopefully not do anything wrong and get stabbed, and then die at 35. Like there really were fewer choices and the institutions really were um in some ways they were they were more um, aggressive about owning people, but in some ways they really <laughs> were a shortcut to knowing what to do with the day when you were going to be uneducated and die really young. But now, like Tim Ferriss showed us, you have options. You have a lot of options to be outside of institutions. And here's, here is the reason it's worth thinking about this. Okay. So you know me, I'm always obsessed with Asian philosophy as well as Western philosophy. And what's missing from our philosophical bedrock and is there in Asia is this idea of escape from suffering completely, mm. where you liberate your, um, I don't know, your Buddha nature, your essential self, your no self. Um, it stops speaking in the words of the left hemisphere. So it this this condition of absolute freedom becomes hard to talk about. But here's the deal. I realized as we were talking about this, serving an institution is safety for the ego, for the part that is all about climbing pyramids um, as sort of a, a, an ape in a hierarchical structure. So that the ego gets fed as it's fed on by institutions. And the ego grows and grows as the soul gets rejected. The, the core self gets rejected. If you choose freedom, if you choose to liberate your soul, your true self, it gradually breaks apart the ego that is the institutionalized self inside you. And then it starts bumping into and possibly destroying other institutions around you. Mm. So mm. it's like, keep your ego and lose your soul. Keep your soul and lose your ego. Those are your choices. All right. So let's break that down a little bit. Mm. You're saying that when there's a fork in the road for us personally in our own lives, mm -hmm. the choice to turn towards the institution, to turn like to turn with the cultural stream, you know, is is something that feels safe to our ego, which yeah. is the part of ourselves that seeks the approval and the safety and all mm -hmm. of that sort of thing. As well, an approval also is promotions, and, yeah. You know, and it goes toward pleasure and it avoids pain. So, oh, right, safe. yeah. 
while the choice to turn away from the culture feels like freedom, which actually it's the culture that's taught us that that is scary, that the sensation of freedom is scary and unsafe. Yeah. So it's it's our like institutionalized self that has been taught by the culture to become the culture that that feels unsafe. It's not actually, it doesn't feel unsafe to our soul. Our soul's just been shoved to the side. Right. Well, Michael Singer in The Untethered Soul writes about how um, you're in the in the forest and somebody's put you in a cage mm. and and then someone opens the door and says, this isn't locked. You could come out. And you're like, why would I go into a forest? Do you know <laughs> what can happen to you out there? And we cling to the bars of our cage because it's a shell. It shows us, it, it makes us feel like we're not going to get attacked by wild nature, nature red in tooth and claw. So we stay in the in the cage, we trash our treasures and treasure our trash. We start to cling to the cage as a kind of, of free will choice. We mm. think it's free will. Um, but actual freedom from the, for the soul is the opposite of all institutionalizing forces. Hmm. So the institution works like a machine. It has parts that can be interchangeable. Like different people can fit into different slots. They mm. become like on Henry Ford's um, assembly line. They One person is as good an, as another. There's no individuality. There right. is a role and you do the role, even if it's soulless and it's drudgery and it feels pointless and purposeless. And I will tell you something. More people, when, when I ask people, why do you need coaching? Mm-hmm. one thing more than anything else drives them. And that is, I have no sense of purpose. Mm. And and so purposelessness does not sound like an affliction, but it is like a knife in your guts if it goes far enough. Mm. There's such a primordial drive toward becoming your true self that no, that being purposeless, is it drives people to suicide sometimes. So Against this pointlessness, if you go out and start wandering in the wild forest, you will be terrified many times and you will, you will have bumps and scrapes. You will Mm. fail. You will get hurt in some ways. You'll break your heart and you will begin to follow your fascinations and they will lead to your purpose. And anything on purpose becomes the fulfillment and the, it's what you were trading for the supposed safety of the institution. It's right. a wild, it's wildness in its essence. And it can look mad to the culture, but it's not madness, it's integrity. And as you go out into that wildness, the whole question of safety becomes very relevant, right? right. You realize that seeking safety never really made much sense mm-hmm. anyway. And and so what it becomes is I don't have rules to tell me if I'm being safe and I'm doing it right. It's, it's, I go, like we always say, I go inside and find out if it feels good to me. Yeah. And fascinating things can happen. I mean, we, we, we were talking a little biblical stuff where Jesus told Mary, supposedly, she said, don't go to um, Jerusalem, you're going to get killed. And he's like, 
I have to, I've, I'm making my choice, but it was completely like, except he said, for this cause came I into the world, King James version. Thank you. I was raised Mormon. Um, and then he went in knowing he would be killed. And then when he was being killed, he said, these people don't know what they're doing. It's okay. Like he, he chose responsibility over and over and over and over for himself. And then all these churches sprung up that are like, don't have any self-agency, just do everything we tell you. And yeah. it's, the opposite of of the freedom that he was modeling for the world. Yeah. All right. That's a lot. I've always been weird. <laughs> when I write and speak professionally, I have to tone it down, especially the part where I believe the universe loves us and is on our side. A few years ago, I decided to just show up online and say what I really think. This became the gathering pod a series of discussions about how to thrive in a difficult world. So if you need hope, inspiration, or a chance to listen to someone much weirder than you could ever be, come join me on The Gathering Pot. So how do we, how do, we do this without necessarily getting crucified? Yeah, not so much with the crucifixion example, more the Tim Ferriss. Yeah, yeah. more just like lie on a beach and start a vitamin yeah. business. Yeah, win yeah. a tango competition. Yeah. How do, <laughs> how do we come to our senses, Marty? Well, I will tell you in a minute. All right, here we are. And my question is, what is coming to your senses when we're talking about freedom and institutions? So once we'd had this conversation and I, I was pivoting on that one question, what if I'm not being used by an institution? What if I'm using it? Mm. To me, that was a huge aha reversal. And so I started thinking at places where I've used institutions as the fall guy to cover for my own cowardice, where I have said, well, I, I really can't. I mean, one of them was the school system where I was forcing right. my poor children to try to be something different from what their wild nature, because the teachers were calling me and the principal was mad at me and blah, 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 blah. And um, I, I didn't say right away, my choice is to set my child free. Mm. I, I took it out. I tried to make my kids fit in and it was awful. Yeah. And here's what I realized. I mean, and I've done that at various times with, you know, I can't sleep tonight. I have to get my PhD and that kind of thing. Okay. I choose not to sleep because I want a PhD from this institution. That doesn't make the institution responsible for me staying up all night. Right. 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 So I realized that the red flag for the places that I was lying to myself by using an institution as my fall guy is that I felt resentful. Uh. And then I went through all these sessions in my mind that I've had with clients. And when they get resentful and victimy, he won't let me out of this marriage. He doesn't understand me, but he won't set me free. And I'd say, but you are free. And if they were willing to accept that they were free, their resentment was immediately replaced and sometimes it was deep, angry, bitter resentment. It was mm. immediately replaced by terror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you mean I have to get a divorce? Yeah. If you don't want your marriage, you kind of do. So coming to our senses is about actually facing and approaching the things that feel like this scary, scary freedom. 
Well, and the first thing is resentful, resentful, resentful. Mm -hmm. Wherever you are resentful of another person, because it can take place in a relationship, mm -hmm. just a dyad. Or if you're uh, resentful of your family, you're resentful of your nation, whatever it is, stop blaming the institution and say, I am free to disobey the institution. Right. If that immediately takes your anger away and replaces it with fear, you're probably on the right track. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And the, the whole, the terror is, oh my God. And I've heard this from so many people. What will I do if the rules go away? Mm. What will I do? How, how will I know what to do? And they're usually afraid of a Lord of the Flies scenario. I'm going to do something brutal and bestial and wrong and horrifying, but that's actually not what our wild natures choose. So for me, I'm afraid that if all the rules went away, okay, if all the rules went away, I'm afraid that, oh, yeah, so I often will resent the tasks that come with my day job. Yeah. And um, I'm scared that if the rules of that went away, I would just play with words and stories and, and do my writing and do my play, things that feel like play and do that all the time and not do my real job and not be a productive member of society. Yes. And I have the same thing with drawing because when I was a kid, I literally drew 10 hours a day. It's, mm. it's a very, very obsessive thing for me. And I feel like if I start that, if I take off the rules, I will absolutely forget every appointment like all the 10 o'clock Wednesday mornings will just come and go and I won't even look at the <laughs> reminder and I, I was working with this after we had this conversation I was like how can I like feed my soul a little bit with, and still you know participate in life because we all do participate in institutions the question is do we do it free or not free and so I said to my artist self what can I get you to make you feel free and it said get a little case and put a little sketchbook in it and some colored pencils and carry it around. <laughs> and I ordered a little case from Amazon mm. and it came. And it is as big as the Empire State Building. <laughs> it is a large unit. You're supposed to carry huge canvases in there or something. The universe was giving you a bit of a hint there. That's what you said. Yeah. So now I'm stuck. I still have to learn to moderate that. So, but I, my big fear is always that I'm going to get the negative lashback from other people. They're going to be mad at me. Right. And it's so interesting because, like, that's my, my fear too. I don't do my day job and then people get mad at me because I'm not being a productive member of society. And so both of our examples of what we would do end up with people angry at us, yeah. right? So, But then the, the, the fear centers in our brain rev that up to, and I will be an outcast and I will die. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but before that. Yeah. Um, like people are angry because freedom is stepping away from the approval of the culture through the institution, yeah. that automatic approval. And the, and, you know, when we were talking about approval and, and sort of rejection or, yeah. or punishment on the punishment side of the reward, that's what you see, you know, that, that you're yeah. going to face people being mad because we don't, we don't. You know, most of us, please, God, don't live in places where their lives are being threatened. Yeah. So a lot of our fears about being wilder are going to be, yeah. you know, that we're going to make people mad and that's a good sign. 
Yeah. Um, I remember when I left Mormonism, people literally would start shaking and crying when I told them. Other Mormons would shake and cry when I told them I didn't believe it and I was leaving. And they, they would say, but you're, you won't live. You can't live. What are you going to do to live? Because mm. the, the need to belong to a group was so intense for them. And the, the ostracism is so intense in that situation that they literally had served. They told me I would be dead in weeks. They couldn't imagine anything else because that's how institutionalized their minds had begun, had become. And, and that fear was a visceral mm. survival fear for them. Yeah. So how, like, if we think about, okay, so we're having a choice that we personally have to make, how do you tell the difference between the scariness of the freedom of leaving mm -hmm. the institution and the scariness of moving towards something that's actually not the right thing to do? Well, the scariness of moving towards something that's not the right feeling feels like um, it can be almost compulsive, but it, there's a toxicity to it. Like if, for example, I'm going to break the rules by becoming an addict so that I have temporary escape, um, that might feel free for a moment to the mind. But I know from working with addicts that the feeling of being stifled and trapped very quickly starts again. Or you might lose your, leave your family of origin or your marriage and go into a relationship that feels like freedom. And then it crunches down on you again. You realize you're still not free. You're acting out the patterns of not freedom of institutions inside the new situation. So anything that feels like entrapment and um, ca being caged, mm -hmm. there's that combination of, oh, I'm safe now. And then, oh, I can't really move or make choices. Right. Then, you know, you're going from wrong thing to wrong thing to wrong thing. And the resentment and anger will come back. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. So then when you, when you leave the, the protection of the institution and yeah. move into, into true freedom, what's that process like? What does it feel like? The, the first thing is I always used to say to people, um, and I got a therapist trained me to do this. Somebody would come in and say, I feel caged by my life. I feel like I have no choices. And why? Well, because my boss says this or my mother says that. And I'd say, all right, imagine your boss sitting across from you and say to them, I, I am going to give up all my free will and I'm going to do whatever you say. I believe you more than myself. I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to cooperate completely with any institution. And what would happen is they tried to say, I'm going to sell my soul to the devil, basically, mm. is their anger would arise out. No! Like, there's a psychologist named John Bradshaw who was just about to ordain as a priest and the last night he was like, no. And then immediately they started to say, oh, I can't do that. Oh, crap. I have to create my own life. I'm responsible for this. And at first it feels negative, but then it starts to feel delicious as they mm. realize how creative they can be in this day and age. Right. So freedom is is responsibility, you know, for yourself. Yeah. It's, it's accountability, right? It's like freedom is the state of being a grown-up in your own life, becoming the grown-up instead yeah. of giving that role to the institution. And that's the that's the con the where we're we're being condemned to be yeah. free, as Sartre said. Yeah. So just remember, here's the choice. You can choose the safety of an institution, which will build your ego and destroy part of your soul. Mm. Or you can choose to act on your deepest impulses, your nature, which will free your soul and destroy part of your ego. 
maybe until your ego's all gone. Yeah, that'd be nice. Now, I heard you're Pascal. Yeah. And I would like to raise you a little Foucault. Yeah, yeah. Foucault? Damn, I'm not old Foucault. Foucault, I barely met her. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he talks about institutions a lot and he says, you know, that um, the the machine can actually come to inhabit you. The institution mm. takes over mm. and becomes its own actor separate from the people who have made it Yeah, and um, then it, it replaces who you really are. So you, you have your ego, you have that institutional force yeah. of yourself uh, but, but it's not even you anymore but it's not you anymore you've lost yourself um, or you go free and you end up disrupting the institutions and the machine can't take take you over in that state so you lose ego but you free self amazing so I, I just have one thing to raise you I see your Foucault and I talk to you in baby talk I raise you one Albert Camus uh, I say to you, this is a serious quote, and I love it, <laughs> from Albert Camus. The only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Mic drop. Whoa. Let's do that. And with that, stay, stay wild. We hope you're enjoying Bewildered. If you're in the USA and want to be notified when a new episode comes out, text the word WILD to 570-873-0144. We're also on Instagram. Our handle is Bewildered Podcast. You can follow us to get updates, hear funny snippets and outtakes, and chat with other fans of the show. Bewildered is produced by Scott Forster with support from the brilliant team at MBI. And remember, if you're having fun, please rate and review and stay wild. You know, what I'm seeing out in the world is a lot of fear and a growing amount of despair. Maybe you're feeling that way too, because the ways our culture has taught us to navigate the world, to navigate our lives, they are failing us. We need a new language. We need a new set of tools to find our way individually and as a group. And I know we can still do this. I put everything I do know about it into Wayfinder Life Coach Training. And the tools that I teach there are to help people redefine how we relate to each other, how we make a living, how we do community. We can only change the world for the better if we redefine how we think and the world needs Wayfinders now more than ever. So please go to MarthaBeck.com and you'll find your way. <laughs>